Hello and welcome to the Jesuit Order podcast. This podcast explores the Catholic response along the U.S.-Mexico border. My name is Louis Hotop. And I'm Brian Strasberger. We're a pair of Jesuit priests mission to the Diocese of Brownsville, Texas. We're not from the border, but we live here now. This podcast will highlight some of the work that the Catholic Church and others are doing to address the needs on the border, as well as explore immigration topics from the perspective of Catholic social teaching. Let's begin. Vamos. Our first topic this week is life and dignity of the human person. That's right. We'll be interviewing Bishop Daniel Flores, who is the bishop for the Diocese of Brownsville, Texas. So stay tuned for that. But first, Louis, why don't we talk a little bit about our experiences of going across the border from McAllen, Texas, which is a neighboring city here of Brownsville, into Reynosa in Mexico. Yeah, so for the last few months or so, we've been driving from our home in Brownsville all the way across the valley and then down into Reynosa. We've we've dealt with border security, we've dealt with taxes, we've tried to just get our way across in order to bring some supplies to a camp that is in Reynosa, Mexico. Yeah, that plaza, right? it's right within view of the bridge that leads between the U.S. and Mexico. And in that plaza, there's this camp of migrants that have set up tents. They're all coming to the United States seeking asylum, but unable because of some public health laws, some immigration laws that are holdovers from the past year or so that are preventing them from doing so. So they're unable to enter the country. They're caught kind of in a state of limbo. That's right. And and some of them have been there for quite a while. So they've been on this uh, in this limbo for a month, two months, some people over a year. And within this camp, sometimes we hear, you know, I've been on the border for a year in different parts of the border. I've been uh, I've been making my way up from my home country, from Guatemala or Honduras or El Salvador, and now I'm finally here, but I'm stuck here on the border. I can't come into the United States. Yeah, and I think the profile of the average migrant there might come as a surprise to some of our listeners. You know, the the tip, the stereotypical migrant coming to look for work in the United States, we might be thinking of young, single men. But I think from our experience, we've seen a lot of women, a lot of children, family units, which means young young kids are sleeping in this plaza, in these tents outside. And you really only can believe something like that when you see it. You know, when it's not in front of your face, when it's not, you know, something that's happening right next door to you, it's hard to really grasp what what this actually means, what this actually looks like. You know, the first times we were going over, I remember reflecting with you later, like, gosh, this is what a refugee camp is. And and it's just nothing I had ever experienced before. So you have all kinds of different reactions to being in a space like this. Yeah, a refugee camp basically located on the other side of the border, which I think when we're talking about the theme of this week, life and dignity of the human person, it's so fundamental to our faith, understanding that every human person is created and endowed with dignity, created in the image and likeness of God. And that doesn't matter what side of a political border that they're living on, right? And yet we see it in our country that the attention given to these migrants is demonstrably less than what it would be if the same encampment was set up in McAllen, Texas, or in Brownsville. But it's in Reynosa, 
kind of out of sight, out of mind. Right. Think about the supplies that would be given to the camp or the people that would be coming down to intervene in this situation or or the activists that would be really working on behalf of these migrants. Now, that's all here. You know, there are people still helping. There are activists present. There are people going across. And in this show, we hope to highlight some of those people and their efforts. But at the same time, this removal of people from being your neighbor actually reduces the likelihood that you'll look at them with dignity or you'll look at them with respect. It's difficult if you're not able to see it. Yeah, absolutely. And speaking of activists going over, I guess you could count the two of us as a couple of those, because as you said, starting a couple months ago, we thought, hey, look, this you know, this is there's some dr- drastic need here. How can we help in whatever small ways to participate to help uh, honor the dignity of the people over there living in this camp? And so we started bringing over donations. That's right. We thought it was a brilliant idea. Like, let's bring a car full of things and let's just distribute this out of kind of our trunk. You, you want to recount a little bit of that first time that we went over, Louis? Well, we went over, we we had a trunk full of hygiene supplies, toothbrushes, toothpaste, and it is it is sweltering. I mean, it is hot, hot, hot. We're talking about above 90 degrees, and we are in our black clerics, so not exactly uh, made for that kind of climate. <laughs> and so we open up the trunk, we park on the we park on the side, we open up the trunk, and then all all of a sudden people start lining up. They kind of know the drill. If somebody comes and parks and they're from the United States, very likely they're going to be handing something out. That's right. My focus was order and discipline. I didn't want just a mass of people just shoving their arms into the car to grab things. So it's like, okay, we're going to line up the men on this side, the women on this side. We're going to be alternating lines. We're doing our best to organize amid the chaos. I mean, there's about a thousand people that live in this camp. Now we're saying, I would say, you know, maybe a hundred or two were lining up as we were waiting there. And while I was doing crowd control, you were doing distribution. Mostly sweating, but yes, <laughs> distribution. We, uh, I was bagging different things in, in little bags because we were trying to keep order. But then, it, you know, the pressure keeps rising and, and the kids keep congregating. And then all of a sudden, you know, I'm turning into this sweaty monster, you know, like, <laughs> everybody get back. And don't, don't look at me in the eyes. <laughs> it, was, it was getting pretty chaotic. And by the end, we were just handing out, you know, we were just handing out things because we lost, we lost all control. Yeah. We could only maintain control for so long, but you had one particularly memorable moment. Oh, it was, it was awful. I, I was leaning over all the toothbrushes and my sweat had built up so much (laughs) that it came out like a faucet when I leaned over and I went and tried to hand this woman. It went out onto the toothbrush. Onto the toothbrush. Which then, was not in a package. It was an open toothbrush that you just sweat yeah, all, all over. over. And then I just sort of mechanically handed it off to this woman, and she was like, no. Well, you know, and that's... <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm not taking that. That's just not the best way to honor her dignity that's as right. a human person. No, because I didn't really see her in that moment. I only, <laughs> I only saw my exhaustion. Well, it was a good lesson for us that there's got to be a better way than us just popping open the trunk in the plaza and distributing product to whoever happens to be in line first. And so it was fortunate because another group of advocates that are active there are Doctors Without Borders. And one of the volunteer, frequent volunteers from that group walked up to us and was like, "Uh, let me introduce you to someone uh, because maybe there's a different way you could do this. 
She was like an angel from heaven. <laughs> it's exactly what we needed because we were we we would have done all that again. We would have. We, we would have just would've. kept doing it. That's right. Yeah. That's right. But instead, she took us and and introduced us to kind of one of the organizing structures of the camp. It's just one plaza that all the tents are set up in, but at the four corners of the plaza, there's a cocina in each of them, basically a kitchen. And so what we what we did is we met the people at the cocina. We found out that that is often the first point of entry for new arrivals. They come up to one of the cocinas. These kitchens will offer uh, some food if they have it, and then also whatever kind of hygiene products or clothing that could be available that gets donated. And so we saw very quickly, this might be a better place for us to organize ourselves. And, you know, one of the great things about it is it's, it's migrants themselves who are doing the distribution. They're caring for each other. They, they step up as leaders within the community. It really becomes this sort of uh, on the ground and within the community organized effort. So there, there is an inspiration there that we see that, that they who are living shoulder to shoulder, you know, in the struggle, in, in this very difficult situation are choosing to step up and aid one another. And, and by offering their gifts, there are nurses in the camp, there are teachers in the camp, there are cooks in the camp, and they all offer their gifts if they can, if they're up for it. And, uh, and they certainly get used within the camp because there's so much need. That's right. And they know the needs and can recognize them better than we can. You know, we pop our trunk. Who are we giving things out to? Basically the first people to see us and to get in line first. The people running those cocinas who we've gotten to know over the past couple months and become friends with have a sense of, you know, who are the people of greater need here? And then also, can we prioritize some of, of these donations to give to the new arrivals who they identify as the ones who often come, having traveled for a month or more on the road, uh, not only being disoriented, but needing, you know, some shampoo and toothbrush and toothpaste and some just basic care products as a way to help them feel and restored in their own human dignity. Someone in our own lives who's been a great advocate within the church for the rights and dignity of, of migrants has been Bishop Daniel Flores, who invited us to come to the diocese in the first place. We're excited to have him on our first episode as the first interview for the Jesuit Border Podcast. So why don't we welcome in Bishop Daniel Flores. Special thank you to you, Bishop Flores, for joining us uh, for our first interview on the Jesuit Border Podcast. This is your first interview. This is it. That's it. So the hot seat is is really hot right now. Dominic non su dignus. That's very nice of you. Yeah, of course. Now, Bishop, you're you're from this area. You're from Corpus Christi. I grew up in Corpus Christi. Yes, um, uh, my parents. Uh, and my grandparents were from a little town not too far from here, actually, called Zapata, Texas, which is on the border. It's, uh, but it's uh, closer to Laredo. It's, it's not the valley. It's, you go further west and you hit much more uh, desert-like conditions. So anyway, they were from that area of the border, and uh, as many people did after the Second World War, people moved, get married, looked to other places to find work. My dad moved to Corpus Christi, and that's where we grew up. Great. And, and does being down here in Brownsville and in the Valley feel, 
feel like home, or does it feel like you've had to learn quite a bit being here? Well, there's always a lot to learn about the particular situation, but I've always felt very at home. Uh, the thing about uh, growing up in Corpus Christi and having roots in a little town like Zapata, which is really uh, a very small, very old sort of community that goes back probably to the, the 18th century, um, is that it's a very border town, is that um, you get a, a sense of, well, Corpus Christi is kind of like uh, close to the water. It's kind of a beach town. There's there's always accessibility to the Gulf of Mexico. We kind of grew up with that. Uh, when I was a kid, we didn't go on vacations. Uh, what we did was we'd go to the island. Um, but then also having a, a strong connection to uh, to the border because we would go, I mean, like I said, vacations wasn't a thing for us. So we'd go visit my grandparents and, uh, and we'd spend the weekend there and, and uh, everything was in Spanish when you were talking amongst the elders. Mm -hmm. And so that was part of the... As part of the reality of the, of the of the border, you know, both in the valley and further west, um, in the in, along the Rio Grande River, is this sense of the fluidity of the culture. Uh, everybody understood English. Spanish is the is oftentimes the home language, and so that's kind of how I grew up. A very bilingual sort of world of the family. Uh, things would be expressed in one way or the other, um, and if you're talking to your uh, to your elders who generally depend Spanish. So that's very much the valley in terms of, as you know, I mean, you kind of walk anywhere and people will either greet you in Spanish or they'll greet you in English. Uh, and if you greet them in whatever language, then they'll keep talking to you in that language because that's just the, the, the proximity of Mexico kind of contributes to that stability of, of bilingualism that's part of life here. I've been surprised at that in our first few months here, how easily people move in and out of one language and the other. One thing I'm wondering, could you maybe give our listeners a little bit of an overview of the diocese here? What, what's kind of the profile of the Diocese of Brownsville? It's still one of the poorest areas in the country, uh, but I've always said that it's also probably one of the richest in terms of its just spiritual depth and also a sense of concern and uh, care for one another. It, it's a pretty... Uh, Shall I say it's a it's a it's a it's it's a community that still has a strong sense of we have a responsibility to take care of each other. Somebody was telling me today that that uh, the Rio Grande Valley has one of the highest uh, vaccination rates uh, in the country. It's about it's above eighty five percent. And as people ask me what is what do you attribute that to? I attribute that to grandchildren who are looking after their grandparents and who are willing to take them and wait in line for nine hours to get them vaccinated and then taking, realizing that they have a responsibility themselves in some way to protect uh, those around them. And there's a sense of connectedness, which is very much a part of the Catholic ethos. I appreciate you here. I appreciate hearing you talk about the richness down here when we were getting sent down here I would to the Diocese of Brownsville. We talk about going to the margins, the sense that this might be, well, this is the border itself and how it might be some of that political or economic margins, but it's certainly not the margins of the faith. In terms of the faith, it's, it's the heart and the center of it. Right. Yeah, and, it, and, it, and, it's, and that's why one of the, you know, difficult, one of the most difficult things in terms of the life of the church during the, the time we had to suspend masses um, because of the virus was obviously people couldn't, couldn't go to mass um, because we had to close everything down, and 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 it was it was necessary. It was probably one of the hard. Well, I could say it's the hardest decision I ever had to make, um, and it lasted for several months. Um, uh, but people also miss uh, sort of the parish festivals, which I uh, parish festivals are uh, are such a rich expression of 
of a of a communion of the church that is uh, that is very vivid. It's it's multi generational. It's it laughs. It it knows how to enjoy things. There's music. There's kids. There's food, and they and it's just an expression of the joy of being together, which uh, which is also a deep expression of that sense of uh, we were not meant to be alone. Our topic this week, what we really wanted to look at was life and dignity of the human person, in particular in the way that that kind of theme of Catholic social teaching plays out on the border reality. Um, you know, I think there's so many answers to that. How do you see that theme at play here? Uh, there's so many ways of looking at it, but is there anything that comes to mind in a particular way, just when you think about how life and dignity of the human person is addressed here on the border? How, what's the focus of the diocese and, and um, how might the diocese see itself as, as responding to that call by the church? Well, you're absolutely right. It, it, it could be looked at in a number of ways. I, I would start by just noting that that you know we talk about in Catholic social teaching sort of the, the 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 source of kind of the whole of the church's doctrine about about what constitutes justice and, and mercy in a, in, a, in the social context uh, f- flows out of a recognition that that God became one of us uh, and He came one of us who was poor and ultimately rejected and ultimately crucified and that and that this that that that, that therefore the what is made clear by the mystery of the incarnation is is exactly the the closeness of God in the woundedness of the human condition. Now we could we could talk about that, and and I could talk about it. I mean, I've given lectures on it um, at universities, but but the but but the point is that that it doesn't really hit the the rubber doesn't hit the road until you can look at your neighbor and recognize that here is the Lord's anointed, and. I turn my back on the Lord's anointed at my own peril. And that there's a responsibility to kind of, it's a sort of a contemplative thing, to kind of just see our relationships to one another in that light. Um, uh, you recognize the person for who they are, uh, and, 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 and their dignity is something that, that kind of is inherent in having been made in God's image and likeness, and, and, and is, is also having been made in a vulnerable condition. So here in the valley, you know, the the, the issue that we talk about uh, in Catholic social teaching, it, it kind of is, is an opportunity for us to look at Catholic social teaching in practice, which is really about human relation, and how we look at each other and how we respond to each other, and that is to be always with respect and a sense of um, of what happens to you matters to me, and that's an ethos that's part of the of just kind of the the, the life of the faith. Uh, so, so here, you know, it's, 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 people respond generously, and it's not because they're taking classes on Catholic social teaching. <laughs> they respond because they have kind of, we, they ha- we have, I mean, people, I mean, have a deep sense of what, and I would, it's, a, it's a sense of, in grace, uh, of, the, of what um, the incarnation implies for us. I appreciate that emphasis on relationship and observing the person in front of you and seeing them as the Lord's anointed. I mean, what a beautiful image. In the few months we've been down here, I can't think about the issue of immigration, let's say, in the same way after walking through a camp with migrants in Reynosa or attending to people who pass through the Humanitarian Respite Center in McAllen, because you start to have a sense of encounter, something that Pope Francis has talked a lot about, about building a culture of encounter. And the importance of that, I think 
the more we have that encounter with the other, the more it reveals to us the human dignity that is involved in all these people, and that puts a face and a name to what it can otherwise become these abstract concepts that we just can't wrap our minds around. You have to go back to the flesh and blood of the word. Our faith is verified by the act of love. At the end of life, as St. John of the Cross, I quote him all the time, um, you know, we will only be asked about love. But the love he's talking about is a very specific, it is the love that is born of a faith in the God who, who became one of us, suffered the cross, and rose from the dead, and who continues, his body continues to extend itself in the world, and we need to respond to him. And, and the response uh, is, is an act of love. Uh, and, and, and the act of love is, can often be a very mundane, ordinary, even very messy thing. Um, you know, when, you know, when I, when I go uh, and say, visit some of the colonias, some of the parish missions that are out on the, on the periphery of the diocese, um, and, and just kind of in these, go visit little houses where, where maybe there's, there's a couple, two, three generations living there, uh, this the sense of the, of the, of the immense dignity um, that is there and, and, and who they are as they are. Um, we don't have to fix them to make them. The dignity is there, and you just have to let, Pope Francis talked to you have to let that show itself to you before you sit there and try to fix it. Uh, and it's a certain reverence in, in the presence of that. And, and so I, I, just, I just think that that's a, that's a strong connatural sense that, that kind of naturally flows in, in the life of the faith. None of the stuff we do at the respite center or the, the visits, you know, when we had the, the camp in Matamoros before and now at the camp in, in Reynosa, uh, and, and the work we do in the respite center and also in the colonias and the, in the outskirts, um, none of that is a, is a, is an abstraction. Uh, it it and, and, and it's and it's and, it, and it, people respond to it. Um, but and I think for our young people, you have to try to give them an experience of that, um, because that's the only way you can really kind of explain what Jesus means when he says, "Unless you're willing to lose your life, you will not find it." And that is, you need to forget yourself a little bit uh, and go out and think about somebody else. And that means you actually do something. One of my favorite lines uh, in my, in, in, that I use a lot in sermons is que el amor se mueve o no es nada. Yeah, love moves and does something or it's nothing. It's just a, a word. And, but it because it, it is an active thing. I mean, God's love was, is shown for us by what he does for us and what he did for us. And that's, and that's kind of the flowering that has to kind of show itself. We have a, all of that, you know, there's a lot of spontaneous sort of response uh, here in the Valley to these different situations. None of it would be possible if people didn't give of themselves and thought of something besides themselves and, 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 and kind of work together and, and, and kind of know uh, to, and take the time and the patience to learn from what people are living, how best to assist them and to help them along the road. Um, the parable of the Good Samaritan is all about the Samaritan who went out of his way and gave away time uh, which I think, especially in the modern world, is the most valuable commodity. That we have so many volunteers now for several years who give time to prepare food, to wash the floor, to uh, to to uh, to uh, to donate, to go out and buy tennis shoes, uh, little baby tennis shoes, anything you who just give of their time for that uh, is is extraordinarily powerful message. I think you know part of the challenge. Of, of working in this kind of situation is seeing that full picture of the people in front of you, you know, walking into their space and, and seeing, you know, this isn't exactly what I've imagined or what I've been told in the newspapers or because it's much more complex than just a sad, difficult situation. 
that there are real people here. You know, there are real people who are in this situation who, who have joys and sorrows, who are just as complex, just as experienced, you know, all those things as, as my reality. And yet it can be so, you know, two-dimensional when it's presented um, to us through different media, different things like that. You know, like I was in the camp the other day talking to a, a guy and we're, you know, very often people want to show you something they're proud of. You know, so, you know, we built this, we put up this tent, we, you know, we got all this food and we cooked it, we handed it all those things. And his thing, he, uh, he was like, this is my daughter. You know, he, he brought her over and he wanted to introduce her to me. And that to me was just so striking that, you know, here's something I'm so proud of. This is my daughter and she's here with me. And I, I think that those kind of realities get overlooked, you know, when we, when we make it a two-dimensional thing. Right. And, 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 and kind of look past the particular humanity. Human beings are particular flesh and blood. They're not like people in general. And part of the problem with the general discourse of this country on immigration is that we talk about numbers and we talk about statistics and we talk about what, you know, well, well, this can't happen because this would be the result. And it's all sort of an, on a certain level of abstraction that doesn't look at the particular human person. Uh, one of the most moving things I, I do here in the Valley, and I may, I'm glad I'll be able to do it again this year because COVID kind of made it difficult, is I would, you know, in addition to the respite center, which is largely mothers and children, fathers and children who are on their way to uh, family members after they've been released by the federal government, to kind of reunite, uh, we also have very quite a number of, uh, of unaccompanied minors in the detention centers, uh, which are run sometimes by the government, sometimes by the HHS, sometimes uh, by uh, private contractors. In any case, I, I do try to get a, it gets arranged where around Christmas Eve I will go and say one of the masses at one of the unaccompanied minors. I'll be able to do that again this year. Um, I'm glad and thankful to God for that. But some of the most moving things is, 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 is uh, you know, after the Mass is over, um, we ask that the different groups from Guatemala or Honduras, or they're all teenagers, uh, tough, you know, tough guys and, um, and young ladies, but because they've seen a lot, and, and, uh, and, and maybe to kind of sing some of the Christmas songs that they would sing at home. Uh, it's an important thing to ask them to do um, uh, because they start singing them and then they start crying. Um, because they did leave people behind. And they do, they do want you to pray for their grandmother and, and, and for their mom who, uh, who's in a very dangerous situation. I mean, th th this, unless you let that sort of impact you, um, you know, that could be my nephew. And in a, in a large, truly Christian sense, that is my nephew. Um, and then you say, well, then how can we work together in a community to kind of make things a little better? We can't fix everything, but the least we can do is treat with respect the hopes and the dreams of people and, and try to craft a, a, on a higher level of, of abstraction uh, a national policy that, that puts human dignity first. It's easy to spend time with the, the kids and see them playful and cheerful, and you, you, you can tell their resilience and kids will be kids, but... Then if you go just a little bit deeper beyond the surface, you can see just how much they're often carrying. Yeah. They carry a lot. And, and one of the things that I, I sometimes will say to some of our volunteers, we have a lot of volunteers who give a lot of time, like I said, washing the floors and washing diapers and just fix, is, is, is you know, be very respectful, especially of teenagers who, who, 
who may not be ready to tell you kind of what exactly it's been like. Um, if they start talking to you, you know, but about kind of what they've seen, but but a lot of them have seen things that would we we would you know just the 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 trek from Guatemala through Mexico. Um, anyway, you have to respect that. There's a lot of woundedness there, and I think one of the things that you know afterwards was they kind of get get to their destination is that. And we try to coordinate a little bit with some of the Catholic charities in the rest of the country to kind of see if, if or other institutions, you know, to, to offer some some opportunities for them to kind of help work through that. Um, you know, there's a lot of, uh, they've seen a great many things. I think very few of us have, have a sense of what, what the conditions were like in their home country. Um, most people, I do believe, would prefer to stay home. Um, you know, I don't think it's true that everybody wants to live in the United States. Uh, we we kind of I think we tell ourselves that, uh, but 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 most people say, would say the United States is a nice people is a nice place to visit, but wouldn't want to live there because it's not home. I mean, home is such a deeply rooted thing, uh, unless you have to. And I, I think that that's part of what the what the push is. There's a there's a push because the conditions in many of these places are are simply uh, intolerable hmm. on a human level. In the way, I mean, yeah, what what you're inviting by leaving your home is that that break in the family structures, that break in those relationships, break in security. And I think that that does not always get respected when we have these conversations either, that that these people have sacrificed much more than I could ever imagine, you know. And they're they're here and and they're being treated like garbage very often. You know, they're they're abused and used and taken advantage of, and and the system kind of eats them up and spits them out too. So it's it can be to sit across from a young family in that situation can be quite difficult. And I think one one thing that comes to mind just to ask you, you know. So much of this is built around the, that one-on-one -on -one interaction, you know, sitting across from someone and, and just taking them in and allowing them to be themselves, allowing their situation to speak for itself and, and not letting your own thoughts or your own prejudgments and all that get in the way. And I, I wonder if there's someone that you look to as your own example, you know, in, in a situation like that. Is there... Is there some inspiration is there some example that you've encountered or, or that you look to among the saints or or within the church something like that um that that maybe is even as a guide for you yeah. in moments like that i've always had a devotion to miguel pro um who was the in 1927 was uh, uh the young jesuit priest i think he was about 27 who was uh, ultimately executed in the, in the persecution of the church of mexico uh, I've read a lot of lives of his, uh, about him and stuff like that. But one of the things that's always struck me about him, and I, it's, it's just something I, is that he was very adaptable to circumstances. So he would wear disguises, you know, because they were hunting for the priests and, and uh, to arrest them and to execute them, but they couldn't celebrate the sacraments and, and publicly or anything like that. So he would like, sometimes he'd dress up as a, as a, as a, as a, as a, as a shoeshine guy. Sometimes he, he'd dress up as a, as a bartender. I mean, he, just to kind of like sneak around and be able to kind of, Quietly hear a confession in the corner, or 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 or, or be hidden uh, somewhere. I, I think uh, the work of the church that kind of inspires me, that I kind of want, is 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 that, is that we really do need to kind of like know what the situation is and be adaptable to it. Um, 
I think that's at the heart of Catholic social teaching. I also think it's kind of at the heart of the lives of the saints. Uh, uh, and so, you know, somebody like Miguel Pro, I kind of look to as kind of like, you know, you, you kind of, you, you, you're, you kind of think on your feet. And I would say the church here in the Valley has taught me a lot about how, you know, the situation with, with immigration, immigration, you know, in the Valley, there's so many outside forces that affect what happens here in the Valley beyond our control. We, we can't, con we don't, here in the Valley, we don't have any control as to, ultimately, as to what happens in Guatemala that moves people, what, what decisions are made in Mexico, what decisions are made in Washington in terms of, of how it's going to be managed. Uh, and, and our responsibility is to attend to the people who are in front of us. Uh, and you have to be flexible for that, and you have to kind of adapt to the circumstance. And that's kind of what I, I ask our people to do, and they do it. Yeah, I, I mean, it, it, you know, I, I was, we were having a, an assembly the other day for the Synod uh, with, with, uh, in the diocese, and one of the things I said, kind of tongue-in-cheek, but not really. I said, you know, the church is an organized institution, but we shouldn't be so organized that we can't change the plan when we notice that something is different on the ground than before. You have to be adaptable. Um, and, and there's a certain spontaneity of grace, I think, that way. And I, I think the, the saints who kind of give me that sense of, 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 um, of being attentive to the, to the prompting of the Holy Spirit that way, uh, in, in kind of the, you, because how do you address this situation? I appreciate your focus on adaptability, and it makes me wonder if Miguel Pro himself is part of the inspiration for your active social media presence. Uh, we talked a lot about encounter and relationship, uh, and so uh, maybe a, a last question I have for you is two-part. Number one, uh, your Twitter handle, Amigo de Frodo, the friend of Frodo. I think I'd be remiss not to ask you at this moment what inspired that name. And then maybe just how do you see social media as a, a form of ministry for the church today? Yeah, uh, well, I, I took the title, I mean, I, I, I read a lot, and, and, and I, I've read The Lord of the Rings several times. I mean, I think it's a, it's a beautiful work. Uh, I've read it in English, I've read it in Spanish. I, I just like the way it it flows. But, and, and, and Frodo, it, you know, I think part of Tolkien's sort of like anthropology. Uh, I kind of look at Tolkien sort of from a sort of a theological perspective, has sort of an Augustinian view of history, um, which is fairly negative, um, uh, but a, a very Thomistic anthropology. That is to say, he, he's fairly optimistic about, 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 about the resiliency uh, of, 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 um, of hope. So anyway, so, and, and the thing is that, that for for Tolkien, the, the little guy is not the elves. It's not the, the powerful men of Numenor. It's not. It's not. It's it's the little guys who are kind of in the background who will ultimately be the ones who can who have the humility because they're close to the earth to kind of do something that actually changes things. Uh, and Frodo's the little guy. Um, and so my my thing is my my sort of sense is it, it's good to be a friend of somebody like that. So, I mean, so the friend of Frodo is kind of, a, to me, kind of a sense that the, that the relational thing is, is, is Jesus, make friends with the poor. Uh, they will judge you on Judgment Day. Uh, I have, I, I have this, this, this sort of image of final judgment um, where, you know, I kind, of, or I kind of go up to the doors and knock and, 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 and say Peter's there and, and, and he has all the poor behind him. And... Um, and, and he looks at them after I'm there and he says, will any of you speak on his behalf?
Got to say thank you for your witness here in the diocese, in your ministry to the church at large, including on social media, uh, along the border to the migrant response as well that the diocese organizes. I think it's a powerful witness. And we appreciate you as our first guest on the first episode of the Jesuit Border Podcast. It means a lot to have you here with us. Well, I'm just very glad that you are here in the diocese. Uh, it's a great blessing, and, uh, and I'm just uh, very, very grateful to God and to you and uh, for this chance to be with you. Thanks. Well, thank you, Bishop Flores, for joining us. It's been a, it's been a pleasure. Thanks very much. God bless. Well, that's our episode for this week. We're grateful to Bishop Daniel Flores for joining us. This podcast is edited and produced by the Jesuit Conference of Canada and the U.S., and hosted by the Jesuit Post. Remember to subscribe to this podcast to hear more about the U.S.-Mexico border from a Catholic perspective. We'll see you next week on the Jesuit Order Podcast. Nos vemos!